Hi, my name is Katrin, a PhD student and associated member of ML4Q, and you are listening to ML4Q and A, a show where members from the Meta and Light for Quantum Computing cluster answer questions about the work in the cluster, their research, and the future of quantum. In today's episode, I am talking to Dagmar Bruce, professor for theoretical physics at the University of Düsseldorf and a member of ML4Q. We will be talking about Dagmar's career steps, the Super Cosmos project in astronomical technology, how a coffee break in Oxford changed her research focus to quantum key distribution and her thoughts on the imposter phenomenon and how it affects many young researchers. Hi, Dagmar. <laughs> Hi, Catherine. It's such a long time that we haven't met each other in the morning in the corridor at 8.20, just before the lecture, and you were always so awake. Yeah, it's, uh, and I'm also missing all the, the live uh, tutoring and exercises. And um, however, I'm still having the, the early morning lecture, so it's. <laughs> ah, very good, but we don't meet each other anymore. No. But here we meet. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I have some questions to you, to your uh, research, to your. Um, way to quantum information and um, also um, later a short game to play. <laughs> Ooh, I'm curious. Yeah, um, how was your journey to quantum information? Um, I've, uh, according to your um, CV, you were also um, in astronomical technology, which is quite far away from quantum computing. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually, my journey to quantum information was completely unpredictable. So actually, I think I bumped into it more or less by coincidence. So I did a PhD in Heidelberg on particle physics, which was actually even after astronomical technology that you just mentioned. So I was doing, I was working on symmetry violations, on discrete symmetry, so on parity violation, and um, yeah, and then I went to Oxford afterwards. Actually, it was like a yeah, I wanted to leave academia after my PhD. I didn't see a future in particle physics, or at least I didn't see my future in particle physics, and I applied for a job outside university, but I didn't get a job. At that time, there was, even for physicists, high unemployment. I applied for jobs. I wrote not many applications, maybe five to ten or so. I got one invitation, and, but they didn't take me. They, were, they invited 12 people, but there were 2,000 applicants for one job. <laughs> and then I decided I go somewhere else, and I, went, I had an offer to go to Oxford as a postdoc, working on um, PT violation, so on violation of symmetries, of parity, and time reversal. And then I was there for one year, with the contract for one year, and I ran out of money after <laughs> Half a year, of three quarters of a year, I was thinking what to do next. <clears throat> and my office happened to be next to the office of Arthur Eckert, who's one of the founders of quantum information. And uh, my boss was actually on a sabbatical, so I was alone. And then in Oxford, you have these coffee and tea hours, you meet people and you chat. And at one point, Arthur said, ah, well, I have this project. Would you be interested in working with Alice and Bob on, <laughs> on these crypto things, etc.?" And actually, it was more because I didn't know anything else, but I had talked to the people in this group, and I liked the topic very much. And then I joined this group for another year of postdoc in Oxford. 
and this is how everything started. So, and at that time, it was a very small field. So there were very few people in the field. I knew almost everybody in the world who was doing quantum information processing, and I was very lucky. So something that was that looked like being unlucky, not finding a job, and emigrate to, to the United Kingdom because I couldn't find a job in Germany. And the end turned out to be something very positive. So and then I had a good project at the beginning. I was involved in work on no cloning. So maybe you've heard about the no cloning? Yeah, I, I, I heard a bit about the no cloning theorem that actually, um, so that if I understood correctly, the qubit cannot be cloned in, in such a way or? Exactly, exactly. So if you have an unknown qubit, so if you don't know the state of your quantum information processing unit, then you cannot take a perfect copy. And this is because of the laws of quantum mechanics, linearity, unitarity, and this has been known not that long actually, since the beginning of the 80s. And so people knew that it's impossible to clone perfectly. And then the question that Arthur asked me, well, but if you cannot do it perfectly, how well can you do it? So you have to introduce a figure of merit and then you do some calculations. And that was my first project. And in the end, so if you say that the perfect copy would be fidelity one, then I did this calculation actually for some months, it took me. <laughs> and in the end, the answer was five over six, which is, yeah. And I was fascinated by this topic. And then I just stayed because I liked to work there. And I didn't care anymore about future prospect, about whether I find a job or not. I just enjoyed doing the research at that time. Yeah, I can totally relate to that because it's also a thing for me. Uh, I really enjoy research and uh, not only um, like um, I had a, once a, a um, part-time job with um, software development and it w I missed the math, to be honest. <laughs> so I, I can uh, totally relate to, <laughs> to that point. And uh, later you went to Torino, um, to Professor Rassetti. Exactly, exactly, yes. I went to the so-called ISI, Institute for Scientific Interchange, which was a small institute in the mountains and it was specialized somehow on quantum information. There were not many people in the group. Actually, there were, was another postdoc and me. And But the Torino conferences were there. There was a famous series of quantum information conferences set in Torino in exactly this Villa Gualino in, in the mountains there. Well, in, in Colina, in the hills, <laughs> I would say. And I heard actually, the f I think it was maybe even the first talk of Love Grover, who talked about the search algorithm that became very famous. And I also heard a talk by, this was probably not his first talk, but one of the first by Peter Shaw. And I'm sure that you have heard about this famous factoring algorithm. So he found out how to, how to use quantum mechanics to find a better algorithm for finding the prime factors of a large number. Actually, exponentially faster is this algorithm. And yeah, so I was there somehow in the first years of the development of quantum information processing. And I, it was a fantastic time, full of energy, full of I don't know, this kind of adventurous feeling that we start a journey into some unexplored area. And I, I, was, I was really lucky to be there at that, at that time, at the right place, 
So yeah, I was very lucky in the end. Yeah, it's it's quite impressive meeting meeting the heads of of basically quantum algorithms and uh, <laughs> exactly. And so this is also the reason why you decided to become a theorist, or um, was there some point where you really thought, okay, I'm I I don't want to make experiments. I want to study the mathematical uh, basics uh, of uh, physics. Yeah, maybe that happened even before. So I did a diploma in theoretical particle physics also. And then somehow I wanted to do something else. And actually that's when I went to Edinburgh to do this Master of Science in Astronomical Technology. Mm. And I wanted to, I think I wanted to experience whether I'm better in theory or better in experiments. So that was an experimental master. And my job was to, to design an optical apparatus for scanning big so-called Schmidt plates, which are not even used anymore today. So these were big photographic plates on which there were um, pictures of the, of the stars. And this was an apparatus that scanned this plate and was reading it out. And I think it was called Supercosmos, so I was developing this apparatus which was called Supercosmos, which was great and it still worked for a long time after I left, but nowadays of course it's outdated. But what really drove me crazy then was that I, I didn't really understand what I was doing. I was playing around with these different parts of the system and then at some point our light source broke or was not strong enough, I don't remember, and we had to wait for almost a month to get a new light source. I couldn't do anything during that time. But in the end, this feeling that I don't really fully understand what I'm doing and why it works, this just drove me crazy. And then I decided I'm not an experimentalist. <laughs> and uh, I really want to, to understand in more depth why things work and how they work. And I decided to returned to Germany and that's when I moved back to theoretical physics and did a PhD in theoretical physics and ever since I haven't done any other attempt to do experimental physics. Maybe I was just not good enough for that but <laughs> I think my uh, yeah my interest is more in the theory. And uh, then how was your working day actually? So so it's when I usually explain how I'm working, it's sitting <laughs> at a desk or calculating in front of a blackboard and uh, people usually think, okay, and what do you beside that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. It's not easy to explain people what actually makes your working day, what you're doing the whole day. Maybe nowadays for me it's, easier because my life has, or my usual working day has changed a lot since I was a postdoc and now I was talking about Oxford or later in Hanover. At that time I was doing mainly science and nowadays I'm really sorry about that, but I think it happens to everybody getting older, <laughs> that I don't do mainly science anymore. So the, the good days are when I have time to do science <laughs> and uh, well, the days which are not perfect, but maybe a little bit less good, <laughs> are when I have to do many other things. So, of course, I'm teaching, I enjoy teaching. And now during the term, quite a lot of time is taken by teaching itself and by preparing to teach, by organizing to teach, by um, 
thinking about exam questions, by preparing for seminars, reading the papers that are presented in the journal club, for instance, in our seminar. And uh, apart from teaching and research, the third thing that I have to do is, of course, administration at the university. And yeah, this means a lot of things. So I have to, maybe my, my most important job is to acquire funding for the group. So to run the group, you have to find money to pay PhD students and postdocs. And this actually takes quite a bit of energy. The situation for funding is not, not bad at the moment. I mean, mm, everybody's interested in quantum technology. There are a lot of projects. So I don't complain at all about this. So I think it's a great time to do quantum science. Yeah, the things that I also have to do is like working in search committees for new professorships or also announcing positions for my own group, choosing people. So I, I'm listening to talks by people who apply for jobs in my group. And actually now thinking about it, I think most of the things that I nowadays do in my working day, I haven't learned to do properly. <laughs> I mean, when you study, you learn to solve certain questions, you, you learn methods in theoretical physics, you learn to solve exam questions, but you neither learn to teach, you don't learn to, to, to run the financial office <laughs> of your little family enterprise, you don't get any training in choosing personnel. So the only thing that you learn when you study is you learn to learn. <laughs> and then <laughs> and later, when I started this position here in Düsseldorf, I had to learn a lot by just doing, by jumping into the cold water and by doing it. And I still learn every day. <laughs> but one can see the effort. It's uh, You have a nice group and... <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I think so too. And I mean, besides, uh, we, uh, before the whole um, uh, pandemic, we had also um, all the, uh, some journeys together. Exactly. We had this nice group excursion, <laughs> going for a hike in the summer, having a nice kind of Christmas party in the winter. But I hope really that we will come back to that as soon as possible. Maybe already this December. Let's see. Yeah, speaking about efforts, are there sometimes struggles that, that, that you think you, you um, as you said, that, that uh, you cannot uh, uh, take all the time for, uh, for science or you sometimes think you didn't accomplish everything? Um, mm. I think there are many struggles and you have to get used to the fact that you don't manage to do all the things that you want to do. So I, I usually have this to-do list that grows longer and longer and then I, I'm happy if in the evening I can tick off a few things, but I never finish. So meanwhile I can sleep properly, <laughs> but at the beginning I always had the feeling I'm, I'm not performing well enough because I don't manage to do all the things that I should do. But you get used to it, like well, you get used to many things in life. But my, my main problem, my main struggle is, I think, really the lack of time. So it's impossible to do parallel processing. People know that. But sometimes I still try and then I don't manage. So the best is still to do the most important thing and then to do the next thing and maybe not worry too much about the day after. <laughs> At least I'm trying. <laughs> 
Yeah, you said uh, you experienced a phenomenon for yourself uh, once, uh, the so-called imposter phenomenon. Um, maybe you can explain it better. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, we talked about this briefly, you know, before this interview. I found this just a very interesting psychological phenomenon, about which I'd never heard before, and I recently read about it. So that's why, yeah. why it came up in, um, here in this situation. So this imposter phenomenon is an effect that often concerns people who are highly educated and to achieve very well. So people who have a doctoral degree or even are professors. And it means this imposter phenomenon or imposter syndrome means that you think that you are an imposter. So you think that other people mm, judge you higher than you actually deserve. So like if you are a doctor, that maybe you don't really deserve this doctoral degree, something like that. <coughs> And it actually mm, occurs with many young scientists, I read in this article. So that's why I also thought maybe it's an interesting topic to touch here, because maybe there are mm. people around who feel the same and don't know that this phenomenon exists and it's very common actually. And in my case, it was kind of a revelation because I also experienced this phenomenon. And actually, I still remember the day before my PhD exam, I had exactly this feeling. No? So tomorrow I will have this exam, but I'm not really ready. I mean, why should they give me this <laughs> PhD degree? I, yes, I've done a little bit of work and I've published some papers, but I don't feel that I deserve it. So I had this inner feeling. I didn't talk with anybody about it because you don't talk with people about this. And then I thought, well, tomorrow they will find out. <laughs> But in the end, they didn't find out. They gave me the degree. I got a good mark and so on, and everything continued. But this feeling was there somehow. And that's why I found it so interesting to see after many, many years now, recently, that it's something known in psychology and that actually quite few people uh, are concerned about that. And well, I don't want to say suffer, so of course. I didn't suffer, it was just an internal feeling, so I didn't change my career. So if somebody thinks about changing the career, then it's then one should take a, should take a step and change it. And actually, at first I thought that it concerns mostly young women in science, but this doesn't seem to be true. So it seems that statistically both men and women um, yeah, are experience this phenomenon. And then it gets better when you get older because then at some point you don't worry so much about yourself anymore because you take responsibility mainly for others. And this is also true for me because now other people um, are the ones for, for whom I have to, yeah, to find problems to solve and I have to care for them and etc. So I don't care so much about myself anymore and about my worries. <laughs> But you have, uh, so, so what I have uh, seen, you have quite accomplished a lot of things. And maybe let's talk about uh, um, the things you have accomplished. So you are quite, um, uh, you, you do quite a lot in, um, in quantum uh, key distribution. Mm -hmm. And um, and maybe before coming to quantum key distribution, we should uh, explain a few things about quantum computation and what the problems are. So you talked about Shor's algorithm and Grover's algorithm. And, and as far as I understood, this uh, Shor's algorithm um, is about the reason that 
uh, to, uh, to be a problem that um, we that it could solve uh, the cryptography of normal computers. And in this case, it could be quite, so to say, dangerous for, uh, for cryptographic uh, keys. Yeah, that's true, in fact. So if the Shaw algorithm would be performed on a quantum computer that still doesn't exist in its full glory, let's put it like that, <laughs> then conventional cryptographic methods would be in danger. So you mentioned RSA, this public key cryptography that is used nowadays and that relies on the fact that nowadays it's very difficult to factorize a large number, to find the prime factors. So this is a function that is asymmetric. So if I tell you a number, let's say I give you a number and you're supposed to find the prime factor. So I tell you the number 91. <laughs> Can you tell me the prime factors of 91? Of 91? <laughs> it's not so easy, no? So how would you do it to solve this problem? Uh, how would you start? You would start I will check uh, whether first divide by two to, to get the first prime number exactly. and re realizing that it's not possible in 91. And I think I would start then with uh, three, which is also not possible for 91. Exactly. And in the next case, I would go for five, which is also um, impossible for 91. Exactly. So going by each prime number. And then the next one would be? Yeah, seven. Seven. <laughs> and uh, it should be divided by seven. It's 17 and then, uh, 70 and uh, then it's 21. So it would be uh, 13. Exactly. So you found the prime factors of 91, <laughs> it's 7 times 13. But it took you quite a while, no? And you, we saw also that the algorithm that you used was, it was a good algorithm, but it's very long, no? Now imagine that you have a very, very long number, it will take ages. But the other way around to solve this problem, so if I give you the prime factors, and you are supposed to find the um, product of the prime factors, this is easy, no? If I tell you multiply 7 times 13, it's easy. So you have a clear algorithm. You multiply 7 times 10, it's 70, plus 7 times 3, it's 21, 91. So this is a, an example of a function that is asymmetric in the sense that in one direction it's very easy to solve, multiplication of the prime factors, and in the other direction it's very difficult. And that's somehow the basic idea of public key cryptography, where um, for the encoding you use a key that is publicly known, 91, but then the private key is very difficult to find. And the private key is only known to the legitimate users. And yeah, but now, as you said, if Shaw's algorithm comes up in a quantum computer, suddenly you can factorize very, very large numbers and RSA would become completely insecure. And that's where quantum crypto sets in or QK, uh, quantum key distribution or QKD, as you correctly said, where the idea is that you use the properties of quantum mechanics in order to establish a key that is random and that is only known to the legitimate users. So in this sense, quantum computing is a danger for classical cryptography, but at the same time, quantum cryptography offers a solution to this problem. And that's why people were so excited when the first protocols on quantum cryptography, or nowadays people say more often 
quantum key distribution when these protocols came up. And the first one was in the 80s already, in 1984, by Bennett and Brassard. And uh, yeah, they described how to realize such a protocol by sending single polarized photons. And then actually the second protocol was done by Arthur Eckert, my boss in Oxford, who described how to do QKD, quantum key distribution, with entangled systems. And somehow this is the very first idea that is nowadays very famous and so-called device-independent QKD, where you don't need to make any assumptions about the devices. But Arthur at that time already had this idea that if you have entanglement, you can somehow prove that your system has quantum properties and that an eavesdropper, now we come back to the no cloning theory, <laughs> because the eavesdropper would like to learn the state of the quantum system. So usually the eavesdropper is called Eve for obvious reasons, because the similarity of the words. So she would like to copy a state that is passing between the legitimate partners, but she cannot copy it perfectly, as we have seen in the no cloning theory. And that offers the security of quantum crypto because a perfect state, uh, um, an unknown state, cannot be copied perfectly. And um, so um, you are um, basically setting up protocols or, um, or defining protocols um, in order to, for, for quantum Q distributions. Um, so uh, in, in one of your publications, you had Alice distributing, for instance, to, to many bobs. And uh, in between Eve, who should not <laughs> be able to, uh, get to, or better to say Eve, to, who should get as less uh, information as possible. Um, maybe uh, you can explain more to that. Uh. Yeah, you described it already, already very well. So recently, actually a few years ago, we started here in Düsseldorf to think about a more general situation. So before I was describing the scenario where two legitimate partners want to communicate and they're usually called Alice and Bob. And then at some point we thought, mm, but what if more than two people want to communicate? Can we generalize this whole idea of quantum cryptography, quantum key distribution to more than two people? And then we came up with ideas how to do that, so looking at entangled states that might allow such a multipartite quantum key distribution between one Alice and several Bobs, as you said. Well, actually, many people call this scenario also conference key agreement, because you can run, for instance, an online conference <laughs> between many people. We all know about these online conferences now. And then if everybody in the online conference shares the same key, then you can communicate in a secure way. So conference key agreement is maybe the terminus that people use mostly nowadays. Yeah, and then there is poor eavesdropper Eve again, and she <laughs> wants to intercept the messages. She wants to eavesdrop. And again, you can bound her knowledge by calculating the information that she can gain by doing an attack on the system. And actually also in the context of ML4Q, we have a very nice project in this direction um, where yeah, Klausia and Federico from my group, they actually do exactly this. They are doing calculations 
in a protocol for so-called device independent conference key agreement where they don't make any assumptions about the devices but they need to prove that the system is quantum by showing the violation of a certain inequality, a so-called Bell inequality, now for many people. And then once you're given the violation of such an inequality, you can, or they calculated these bounds on the information that an eavesdropper can have, and also about, they can calculate also bounds on the correlation between all the parties. And these are highly abstract calculations, very theoretical, very <laughs> elegant, very beautiful. <laughs> so it's a very nice project uh, in this context of ML4Q. Yeah, I've already seen uh, that that's quite also very mathematical. Your, uh, your papers are very mathematical with, with stated theorems and corollas and uh, quite different to <laughs> more of a the device side, <laughs> like me, who, who studies material and just uh, is, is more like, uh, 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 yeah, it's, it's really based on, on the crystal structure and really mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, settled on, 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 a, uh, on the material itself. <laughs> yeah, well, it may look different, but I think in the end, we also want to connect to the experiment. So yes, right now, this project is still very mathematical, but in the end, we also want that the protocols are implemented in an experiment and then you have to deal also with very explicit situations where you have noise models for the experiment so you have to integrate that into your model you have to um, look at the experiment maybe there are some side channels for attacks of Eve so you have to try to understand also the experimental setting much better but this will come at a later stage so actually right now in the project that I described, we don't yet have any implementation. But I also find it interesting and very necessary to, to still keep this link to the real world, to the experiment. And of course also within, within ML4Q there are very direct links to an experiment in Bonn, for instance. Mm. And yeah, this is part of the game. So <laughs> I think both aspects belong together. Yeah, it's, it's always hard to imagine how, how something like this could be implemented in a quantum computer. I've just seen that, that there are possibilities to also implement logic structures. And I mean, it's, it's quite intuitive to do it in a, with a bit system where you just have one or two. And, and, and it's so uh, hard to imagine that, uh, that it can be possible for a quantum which can have basically everything. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, yeah, no, you're mentioning one of the central points actually of quantum information processing so yeah in classical information processing you have bits no you, you said one or two or usually we say zero or one and suddenly in the quantum world you can also superimpose two basis states so let's call the basis state still zero and one but now you can make any possible linear combination of the two and you so you have infinitely many states, and how do you deal with them? But the, the really ingenious thing is that what well, people who invented quantum gates also showed that you only need a very small set of so-called quantum gates to operate on these qubits, and that with a small set of gates you can reach any possible transformation. So basically you can calculate any function on a quantum computer 
by putting together small gates. So one qubit gates and two qubit gates. This is the so-called universality of quantum gates. So in the end, this problem of having infinitely many states and dealing with them in, an, in a very large Hilbert space can be reduced to a tractable problem, let's say. <laughs> At least for theoreticians. For experimentalists, it's still a very difficult problem. Yeah, so um, now I have one or two questions for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to answer them briefly and maybe very quick, so don't think too much about them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, here comes the first. Von Neumann or Shannon entropy? Von Neumann, because it's quantum. <laughs> Bit or qubit? <laughs> well, what can I say? <laughs> qubit. <laughs> Oxford or Torino? Oh, that's more tough. That's more tough. In fact, I was... Well, I mean, now on, on Sunday we have the <laughs> final of the European Soccer sh um, Championship and it's England versus Italy. <laughs> so, no, it's a superposition of okay. Oxford and Torino <laughs> because I like both countries and I like somehow people in both countries. That's okay. I've heard you uh, singing in the choir, soprano or con alto? <laughs> alto, of course. <laughs> Alice and Bob or Eve? Alice and Bob. <laughs> Turing or Feynman? Mm. Ah, this is also difficult. So Feynman for me stands for physics and Turing stands for computer science. I'm a physicist, so I have to say Feynman even though my way of thinking has been influenced by Turing a lot. So it's also a superposition. It's also a superposition. <laughs> we always come back to the quantum world. Yeah, and then Shaw or Grover? Shaw is more powerful. It gives an exponential <laughs> speed up. Yeah, then... Uh, um, is there anything... Um, so, so if there's... One thing that is most impressive for you about quantum cryptography, what's, uh, what is this to you? The thing that is most impressive about quantum cryptography, maybe it's the fact that it's uh, the link between a deep and fundamental property of quantum mechanics Namely the fact that, well, I said you cannot clone an unknown quantum state perfectly. One could also say it's the uncertainty relation. These are just different faces of the same medal, I would say. So you have this very fundamental aspect of quantum mechanics. But now, in this stage of, of the research in quantum information processing, people are thinking about really applying this for security um, measures in our communication society. So we live in a communication society and of course we have a lot of encryption and decryption methods to make our communication secure. But this possibility that this might change our lives in the future, I'm not talking about this year or next year, but maybe in 10, 20 years this might influence our daily lives 
I find this very interesting, that there is this link from the elegant mathematical abstract physical description of quantum physics to our daily lives, which maybe we will see in the future, but we don't know yet. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dagmar, for giving this interview. And I'm pretty sure uh, that it uh, motivates quite a lot of uh, physics students to head to this direction of physics and study that topic. Thanks a lot, Katrin, for these very kind words and for yeah, asking me really difficult and also very nice questions. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.